you tearing up? <laughs> it's just about screamed right now, and I'm not even there. <laughs> now that's inspirational, Natalie. <laughs> I feel inspired today. I, I, you can, I could be here for another hour. No. <laughs> I always go, he winds up homeless on the street, and it's my fault. <laughs> I don't know what got into my head, but I thought, I thought this thought, you know, if I'm working year-round, I might as well get paid year-round. It's <laughs> 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 a weekly 20-minute podcast brought to you by the Continuing Education and Work Force Training Division of Ohio State University. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and subscribe today. Don't do that to me, Paul. Don't do that to me, man. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sweet Talk, our weekly podcast here at Continuing Education Workforce Training at Idaho State University. Um, today, uh, it's just me and Angie, Angie Wilhelm, my co-host and our new marketing person who's joining us. What, this is your fifth, sixth podcast, Angie? Yes, I believe so, somewhere around then. Okay, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? It's a great day. It's a great day. You know why it's a great day? I got a couple of days before I'm going on vacation. Oh, yes, you are. So uh, Paul is heading south to even hotter weather uh, <laughs> shortly. Shortly, yes. But but it, it will be fun because uh, I, I get to uh, relax for, for at least a couple of days. I haven't had a vacation six years. So, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, so Angie, we have a, a great guest with us today, don't we? We do. We have Peter Pruitt. He is the director of Zoo Idaho in Pocatello, Idaho. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Peter, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, podcast world. I'm Peter Pruitt. I'm the director of Zoo Idaho. I came here in 2014. Prior to that, you know, I'm going backwards. It was, I came from Duluth, Minnesota via Atlanta, Georgia, via Philadelphia, PA, via Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I grew up in the other Idaho, or actually I should say, I grew up in the real Iowa in Northwest Iowa. So I've been, been, been around for a while. This is uh, closing in on, well, this year will be 29 years of professional service post um, undergrad graduation. So you, we, we all have to get older sometimes. <laughs> so, so how did you come to be a zoo director, Peter? <laughs> that's, I mean, it's a, that's kind of a great little story. So I started off in Tulsa as the large mammal swing keeper slash elephant keeper. And all my career has been with large mammals. That's hmm a uh, pretty fairly heavy workload and you know you always felt one for my body's sake I wanted to move into management and for my mental sake it I like a challenge and as you move up in the quote ranks of zookeeping you get exposed to more and more challenges and it's also one of the reasons why I, I really do love and prefer smaller zoos I've worked in the large massive operating budgets above a hundred million dollars a year to here in Pocatello where we are under a million dollars in operating budget. Mm -hmm. so if there's a, there's a, a larger challenge within the, the the zoo, I don't have a whole lot of people I can delegate tasks to. You know, I've had to learn a little bit about a marketing, a little bit about fundraising, a little bit about 
education, you know, well beyond just large mammals. You know, I've had to learn about reptiles and birds. You know, birds are kind of my least favorite of critters, but I've had to learn, I've been forced <laughs> to learn about them. And, and so that's a good challenge. And the other thing too, is as we look at zoos in particular with my background, we are really driving home a conservation message within zoos now. I feel it's actually easier and more important within a smaller zoo and a smaller community because they don't have access to, yes, we can go down to the Hogel Zoo or Zoo Boise, they're larger zoos, you know, the Idaho Falls Zoo, they've got a, a significantly larger operating budget is simply because they're exotic animals where we're indigenous. They're kind of similar to us. If I'm going to the Hogel Zoo, I'm going there as one of multiple things I'm going to do during the day in Salt Lake City. And I saw that when I, especially when I was in Atlanta, we can run over a million people, but the majority, I would say 75% of the people that came through the zoo were probably traveling through Atlanta and stopped at the zoo as part of their vacation trips. And getting a conservation message to them is possible, but if we can do it within our community, within the community of Pocatello, it is, it is, it, it's more lasting, it's, it's significant impact. Conservation starts at our front door and it doesn't end when we walk out the back door. And especially within Idaho, we do have, I mean, we are a little bit behind the game and, and I will give um, the city of Pocatello lots of credit. They are moving forward and they are trying very hard to bring conservation into every aspect of our lives. You know, with the Portneuf River revisioning um, program, that is absolutely fantastic. We're recycling glass now in Pocatello. So that's another really strong step forward. And with all our public lands, we have a fantastic opportunity to really make a significant change in our, in our habitats and environments here in Idaho. Well, that's actually led me right into our next question. Can you talk about the conservation and rescue efforts of Zoo Idaho itself? Oh, absolutely. So Zoo Idaho is unique doubly. We're one of a handful of strictly indigenous zoos across the United States. There's, there's about 12. Now there's plenty of zoos that carry native species within their zoo as well, but they include, that's a small part of their zoo they're mainly exotic. You know, we're 100% indigenous, which is, which is wonderful. And the great part too, is we really are literally a rescue facility disguised as a zoo. All the animals that you see that have come into the zoo since my arrival eight years ago have basically been through Idaho Fishing Game and Fish and Wildlife Services. These are animals that can't thrive in the wild anymore. Now we do have four Nigerian dwarf goats that I did purchase, but we also have our three sheep. We've got a couple of other goats and a cow that were actually donated to us because the owners really didn't have the opportunity to care for them the way they would like to anymore. And so they did a really great job reaching out to us and we had room for them. But you know, all of our, I mean, 
a great example is our two black bears. So wonderful, wonderful stories. So their their names are Cooper and Roscoe. Cooper was found <laughs> as a cub, you know, like a month old or so, very still, very small. He was found up in the McCall region by his deceased mother. And we had some backpackers, oh. and this is years ago. We had some backpackers who found him and they literally wrapped him up in a blanket hiked out and got a hold of Fish and Game. And then Fish and Game were able to eventually get them to us. And then a year later, our little guy, Roscoe, was found in the McCall area, again, different spot, as an orphan um, and injured and emaciated. So he was big enough, he was three, four months old. So he was big enough that the hikers didn't wrap him up in a blanket. That wouldn't have been a good story for the hikers, but they were able to come back and contact Fishing Game and Fishing Game were able to find him. And then again, I think he went into a rehab facility first before he came to um, Zoo Idaho. So we have plenty of stories like that on all of our animals. Now, can you talk a little wow. bit about the wetlands and the uh the Swan Project. That yeah, this is another one. This is, we're working with um, Fish and Wildlife Services. And it's, it's kind of evolved as we've been moving forward with the project. We have a, a three and a half acre wetland. It's the three and a half acres of surface area of water. We're managing it like a true wetland. The deepest section is about 30 to 36 inches deep. So, I mean, wetlands aren't a lake or a pond so they're super shallow and the edges of it are really shallow and initially our goal was to develop a trumpeter swan breeding and release program so in our region we have the greater yellowstone trumpeter swan population or the rocky mountain population in Mon they're found in montana wyoming and idaho and the numbers are actually stable we have the numbers where they need to be but the issue is we're not seeing a lot of nesting and reproduction within this trumpeter swan population and so there is concern that if there's any type of pressure on the population the numbers would drop drastically so initially we were looking at starting up a breeding program which will still be part of it however at three and a half acres it's only large enough to have one breeding pair of trumpeter swans and just because you bring a boy trumpeter swan and a girl trumpeter swan together doesn't mean they're gonna like each other. So you have to go through this process of hopefully when you pair them up that they actually do fall into trumpeter swan love and, and, <laughs> and they age, right? So it's a long process. What we've ended up doing is working with the uh, species survival plan coordinator in Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. Her name is Tiffany, wonderful person to work with, with captive breeding and trumpeter swans and other association of zoos and aquariums accredited facilities. What we've ended up doing is we are looking at transitioning into a overwintering area for cygnet and white birds. So cygnets are baby swans, you know, zero to one year old. And then in the spring, after their first year, they molt and they get white feathers like a real trumpeter swan, but they're, they're still juvies in a sense. And so they call them white birds. 
And so what we would end up doing is we'll be bringing in these signet and white birds into Zoo Idaho in October, and they would overwinter in our, our wetlands facility because it is still in a, in a controlled environment, but we, we are able to isolate them pretty much from humans so they don't really start relying on humans, but they get an opportunity to spend a year in what a real wetlands would look like. And then we would release them in the spring. The first few years we were working with the state of Oregon and we'll release these, these white birds in Oregon. And then as Idaho was working with Montana and Wyoming on the Rocky Mountain population, eventually we'd like to transition into Rocky Mountain populations as well. And these are gonna be birds coming across the United States that were bred in captivity. And the reason why we're doing the overwintering is because the, the success rate jumps from under 50%, the survival success rate jumps from under 50% to over 85% when we do that. So we have an opportunity of really jumpstarting, especially in Oregon, the trumpeter swan conservation projects. Okay, now- Excellent. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you, you seem like you've worked with captive bred animals as well as right now you're working with, um, injured animals, right? They were they were yeah. wild animals that were brought into the zoo. That same thing will kind of happen with the swans as well. Can you talk about the biggest challenges and rewards uh, facing working with rescued animals that were born in the wild versus captive bred animals at zoos? So with our rescued animals, for the most part, they're coming in as orphans, usually under a year old. And when we look at our hoofstock, especially elk and mule deer and pronghorn, they'll come in, they could be 48 hours old, or they could be three months old. We still have to, especially with the ones that need to be bottle fed, we're basically feeding them every two to three hours. And that includes when we go home after work. And I've been... I, I kind of feel, you know, my keepers, my team, they're the ones that are out in the hot sun all day long. And they don't need to wake up at midnight or two or 3 a.m. to come in and feed. So I'll take, I'll take those. And, you know, after a while, it's usually a month or so, you're just like, oh, you know, that old Dunkin' Donuts commercial, time to, time to make donuts. Take the right donuts. Time to feed the elk fawns. And you're like, oh. And, and the truth is when you have, wild animals and you bottle feed them they don't they they, they kind of they become weird in a sense because they are acclimated to humans especially the hoofstock because you're like oh you're you guys are considered part of the herd part of the family and there are challenges with bottle fed animals um i would say at times certain animals are way more dangerous as being bottle fed than not you know Long-term goals are is for us are to bring in uh, two to three wolves, wolves, you know, uh, hopefully a, the three siblings. And I don't want bottle-fed wolves because they then they do turn into one of the most dangerous animals in in a zoo. Wolves are pack animals. They the, the the hierarchy isn't consistent. Your alpha and I, I kind of prefer to call your dominant male and female. 
will hold that position for a couple of years, two to three years, and then kind of move on. But underneath, all these wolves within the pack are constantly testing dominance. And if you bottle feed a wolf, they look at you as part of the pack. And so they're gonna all they're gonna always test your dominance and it's gonna be subtle at first. And there will always come a point where if that wolf does in a sense become more dominant than the human keeper, if they knock that human keeper down, if that human keeper shows a measure of fear because the wolf was nipping at your heel or leg, that human keeper no longer goes in with those wolves because they are on the they're on the bottom of the hierarchy and, and it just made their job exponentially more dangerous. And what you end up doing is, you know, what the wolves don't don't know won't hurt them type thing. If we can bring in wolves that have been weaned, you know, rescue wolves that have been weaned, where and they still have to be under a year old. They have to be, you know, three, four, five months old. If they come in weaned, then we would go in there with two staff. One would be the one that services the exhibit. The other would be considered a guard. And they always keep the wolves 20, 30 feet away. You know, if they come, wolves are timid by nature, you know, ignore, you know, the Brothers Grimm's stories about wolves. <laughs> they're curious, but they're not, they're not highly aggressive animals. And so you can keep them, you know, you just stand there with a shovel and go like, rawr, and they stay away. So, you know, that's, that's the important part. They never realize that they are anything other than, oh, that's a human, we need to stay away. And then the other trick is as well, you can't bring adult wild wolves into captivity. They literally go crazy once you put them in capti a captive situation. So you've got that fine little point for us anyway, and I would prefer to rescue. We can always work with other facilities to, to bring in you know, captive bred wolves, but it kind of defeats the purpose of the zoo as a rescue facility. Right. We, you know, and I do feel that we very comfortable that we would be, we would find you know, two to three cubs in that sweet spot where they're weaned, but they don't really, aren't fully wild yet. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about what types of jobs there are at zoos or how someone could get into this line of work if they uh, wanted to kind of follow in your footsteps and get involved with zoos in general or rescue zoos? Oh, absolutely. So. Um, I think people have a misconception that you have to be a, a biology or a life science major to become a professional zookeeper. You don't. Um, one of the best keepers I've ever worked with and, and, and for me, he had an art history degree, <laughs> but he absolutely loved animals. And he started volunteering at Zoo Atlanta when he was a kid. And, and then he would do some, in, he interned in the education department and then eventually got himself a job in the reptile department and worked around. And so a four-year degree is, you know, we, we say we prefer it. Experience also is, is great as well. To me, a four-year degree shows a, a measure of commitment. You're not gonna get wealthy being a zookeeper, not, not at all. And there's so many different aspects of a zoo. You know, yes, you're gonna have your animal keepers. You're gonna have your education department. And so people with an education background, you know, 
outdoor education background as well. You know, it's going to be in an informal setting. So you've got people that you know, we've got educators in there. We have, especially in larger zoos, you know, we're part of the city. So, you know, our finance department handles all the financials, but large zoos, you know, not-for-profit zoos, they're going to have a CFO. They're going to have accountants underneath them. You're going to have an HR department with all that underneath them as well. They're going to have marketing and development. And so there's the, the big picture is that there are a ton of different jobs that you can take within a zoo. You don't have to be an animal expert to make significant contributions to the zoo you work at. And, you know, honestly, development is probably one of the most important aspects of any, any zoo. It's not cheap to run and operate a zoo. They need money. And most zoos nowadays are on the not-for-profit end. And you can't keep a zoo open just strictly off of admissions. You've got to be able to write grants. You've got to be able to, to woo potential donors and, and find ways where everyone within the community can participate in your zoo. You don't need to get $10 million donations each time. Someone who can, can drop a hundred bucks onto their zoo is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's, it's I would say one, find the niche that you absolutely enjoy to do in, 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 your, in your life. And don't be afraid to look at zoos because there's a good chance that there's going to be something within that zoo that covers that niche. And the best way to look for job openings is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. It's aza.org. They, that's where all the, there's 200 plus accredited facilities across the United States. Every accredited facility were advertised any and all of their zoo positions on that website. So it's just not for keepers. Yeah. I've seen CEOs and CFOs advertise on, on that website. Um, if you've got uh, an animal facility around you, whether it's a rehab facility or it's an, a, a zoo, you know, if you think it's a, a possibility for your career, definitely go to that zoo, go to the rehab facility, find time to do to volunteer because I do see a lot of people who come in and their expectations of what it is to work at a zoo are totally off from reality. It's hard work. And I think sometimes they get to spend, they think that they get to spend a lot of time interacting and playing with these really cool animals, but that's not the case. So intern first, because you might realize like, oh yeah, this isn't for me or oh, this is absolutely for me, but I just found out that that department looks really cool. So yeah, and talk to the Excellent. Zookeepers love to talk to people. So if, you, if you're <laughs> at a zoo and you think it's your, you might look at it as a career, flag a zoo employee down. It doesn't even have to be a keeper. Flag them down and just talk to them. They'll, they'll talk with you. Excellent, excellent. Hey, um, we are... Um... Uh, near the end of our uh, podcast episode, but I have one question. What is the most rewarding part of your job? You know, and that's changed over the years that I've spent here. Um, the, when I first started, it really was um, initially, and it was really short, you know, about a year as I was getting my feet into the, 
into the business. I really loved it and enjoyed working with the animals. As a large enamel keeper, I worked with the carnivores, hoofstock, elephants. So it was really intense. You know, cleaning out a, a white rhino rhinoceros yard isn't isn't really easy. You in 24 hours, three of them will fill the back end of a pickup truck. So um, it, it turned into as I was able to get more comfortable with and I was done with my training. It took, it took over a year for me to train in all of those areas. But as I got done with that, I had more time where I could actually interact with our guests and the community. And that turned into a real rewarding aspect because you, you zoos aren't a hundred percent positive. You know, you're, you're, you've got animals in captivity and, and no matter what it's, it's different. And so you're talking with with our general public who might say, oh, zoos are bad. And if they leave and they don't have to sit there and go, oh, my gosh, I changed my mind. Zoos are wonderful. But if they leave and they start thinking about the reason for zoos and why we have zoos, and especially at Zoo, at, at zoo Idaho as, as, as a rescue facility as well. And as I've moved up, I really, truly enjoy seeing the my team and the staff around me thrive and progress in their careers i don't my success isn't measured on what i've actually done at the zoo my success is what the team around me has done you know i've been able to i think as it's been 15 years and i'm closing in on you know i've had five or more of the team i've worked with move into management whether it's lead keep curator etc that's success. When I look at our education programs and Rachel, our education director, and how she is these last few years, even through COVID, has just absolutely thrived and has, has developed amazing programs. And it's the same thing with the keepers, you know, as they've you know grown as keepers and in training and everything involved with that. You know, and I and I do have staff that I know if they chose to so choose to would make excellent leaders so that's where success is excellent excellent that's great um so peter thank you so much for joining us today uh, i I've, I've learned a lot I, I i you know i have been to the zoo i haven't been in a while to be honest i haven't been in a while but i i think i'm going to make a visit there yeah, um just to check hard. it out yeah we're growing making improvements um building new exhibits and facilities so yeah it's it's a it's a zoo in progress and it's and it's fun to be part of that as well excellent now if someone wanted to contact the zoo how would they do that so the easiest thing is to go to our website which is zooidaho.org and you know they'll be able to get our phone numbers there there's even a, a email a your zoo i think it's uh, your zoo at pocatello.us and our phone number is 208-234-6264. And, you know, even if you swing by and you got questions, you go into our gift shop, our, our gift shop, if they can't answer, they're going to call someone. So, yeah, yeah. But the big one is go to, go to our website, zooidaho.org. Zooidaho.org. Thank you. You bet. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Oh, this has been a blast. Yeah, no. Um, so if anyone wants, hey, Angie, always, as always, thank you so much for joining me today uh, as well. Uh, 
So if anyone wants to get a hold of us here at Idaho uh, State University Continuing Education Workforce Training, uh, you can go and visit our website at cetrain.isu.edu. Uh, you can e email us at cetrain at isu.edu. And you can also call us the old fashioned way at 208-282-3372. Thank you so much for listening and everyone be safe out there.